Welcome to Writer's Radio. I'm Carol Harmon, here to introduce Donna Stephen, who will read from her recent book, Edward Foyt's Jr., A Story of Enchantment, and chat with me about Edward, the renowned Swiss guy who spent most of his life guiding in the Canadian Rockies and Selkirk Mountains. In 1899, Christian Hasler and Edward Foyts, mountain guides from Interlaken, Switzerland, signed the first seasonal contracts with the Canadian Pacific Railroad to spend the summer guiding in the Canadian Rockies and Selkirks. This program was part of a CPR campaign to advertise their hotels and backcountry lodges, reached by traveling to the mountains on their trains. Other guides followed, and a second generation, including Edward Foyts, Jr. I'm always amazed by individuals who dedicate part of their lives to commemorating someone whom they admire, not as a job, not for money, grants, or prestige, not to commemorate an ancestor, but in appreciation and gratitude. Edward Foyts, Jr., A Story of Enchantment, is part biography, part personal memoir. It is remarkable in telling the story of client and guide from the point of view of the client, not as journal accounts of mountains climbed, but in remembrance of an enduring lifelong relationship. It is full of anecdotes and history. We begin with Donna reading from the preface. Then our conversation will be punctuated with other readings from the book. Mountains were in Edward's genetic makeup. They were all around him. They were in the air he breathed. They were an irresistible, omnipresent force. Not surprisingly, given the various circumstances of his life, he became a mountain guide. He made more first ascents of Canadian mountains than any of his peers. If achievements are a measure of a life, he was successful, but he was also famous. When asked if he knew he'd been making history, he laughed and said, I never thought about it. The real appeal of Edward's story is more intangible. If it could be summarized in one word, that word would be passion. Whether we march solidly along on a well-defined path in life or simply meander, we are fortunate when our journeys lead us to encounters with people whose luminosity is of a special intensity. Edward Foyts Jr. was one such person. Many counted themselves fortunate to have met him. His story has a memoir component But it is not about me or my family. We are vehicles to convey the enchantment that hundreds before us felt, and I am just the narrator. It is Edward who leads us through the forest and on to the mountaintop.
Donna, how did your family come to know Edward Foyts Jr.? Well, they had their honeymoon at Banff at the foot of Cascade and were both smitten with mountains at that point. And so fairly soon thereafter, I think probably the next summer, they found employment with the Canadian Pacific Railway at the Chateau Lake Louise and then later at Emerald Lake Lodge, which were both CBR properties, as you know. And because they were smitten with mountains, they wanted to get out into them and started climbing with very little knowledge uh, of what they were doing. And some of the things were quite uh, foolhardy in retrospect, like tying their jackets together. (laughs) (laughs) Not recommended as a rope. (laughs) (laughs) And they were you know, intrigued by these guides that were around all the time and started following them around probably like puppies in quite an annoying way, Um, but asking them questions, sadly, sometimes retrospectively. So this is what we did today. (laughs) And Edward would say, no, 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 no. (laughs) That was wrong. (laughs) Someday I'm going to come and get you in a basket. He means, a, you know, a litter. <laughs> I can see the gestures that go with this. <laughs> but they, they uh, were very, very keen. And I think Edward was very enthusiastic about helping amateurs and anybody who was smitten by mountains as he was. And they they just became friends over the course of a few years. Now, after that time, they moved to Hollywood in the 50s, and they kept that, that relationship, which had grown quite, quite strong, especially with Edward. But my parents knew the other guys as well. And... You know, that's when we began began traveling back to Canada to to be in the mountains and and to be with Edward. It turned into a lifelong lifelong connection that was maintained through the years. So you spent almost all of your summers as a child in Canada, staying with Edward at his house. On and off, yes, yes, uh-huh. we were, yes. Yes, yeah. we did quite a bit of camping too, but um, but would stay with Edward for sure and visit, and then go up to Edelweiss, the Swiss village. At what age did you actually start climbing with him? We would do little things, like he would take us to boulders or out in the woods. Most of this, I would say, happened later as far as actually going out with him, because he continued guiding long after his official retirement with the CPR, which was, as you know, mandatory 65 year out. But he continued working as a guide for at least 10 years thereafter and went out with friends for his entire life. At one point, when he stopped guiding, he was an older guy. 
a, a very old guy. And Edward became quite exasperated and said, uh, I'm still guiding. A and he was, because he was a leader and he was teaching and he chose not to do the riskier things as he got older for many reasons. I don't think he wanted to end his life that way for one. He was still out there in the mountains and going over glaciated passes and so forth. Climbed Mount Temple on his 80th birthday. And that was probably the last big event, but it certainly wasn't the end. Edward was the very embodiment of mountain glamour. What child would not be impressed by a man who told captivating adventure stories and made sounds like a bear to accompany them? We were spellbound by his words. To this day, I can see him sitting next to a wood-burning stove as he and the other adults sipped tea from their bone china cups and took turns at storytelling. To us as children, on the one occasion he visited us in the city, awakening to a rhythmic thudding sound to discover an ever-restless Edward seemed as exotic as discovering a mountain goat pacing our floors. He seemed big with his booming voice and forthright manner, but far from being intimidating, he had a real fondness for an understanding of little kids. When we visited him, we spent nights in dens where he kept his climbing memorabilia and his hunting trophies and fought for the privilege of sleeping next to the bear rug. Predictably, once we were all in our sleeping bags with the lights out, we imagined all the animals had come to life. What would start with a few growls now and again would turn into shrieks of giddy excitement, as if we almost believed they were alive. Whenever we became especially noisy, adults would appear to tell us to be quiet and to go to sleep. While the laughter would continue, though now more restrained, the sheep, the goats, the bear, and even the little marmot would all return to their previous mute and inanimate status. The spell had been broken by the intrusion of adults, but alone in the dark with each other, we were beginning to learn the rudiments of storytelling. We were also learning about climbing and hiking. The first skill Edward had to teach the aspirant mountaineer, young or old, was how to walk. He bemoaned that no one knew how to walk in the mountains, slow and steady, conserving energy, as opposed to going to beat the band, as they used to say. The way I climb, I go very slow, the ones that go fast, they hurt themselves. You must take your time. 
Going too quickly, and usually in spurts with too many breaks, leads to exhaustion, he explained, and on steeper terrain, carelessness can be a serious matter. Once, when we were all quite young, a great herd of people zipped past us on the trail. Edward, sensing this might be troubling to our young egos, turned to us and whispered, Don't worry, we'll catch up to them. And we did, and then we passed them. Soon, there was no sight of them at all. Edward was right. We followed in his footsteps most of our waking hours, watching carefully how he placed his hands and feet, and how he used his ice axe on the trail and off. Through forests we went, stepping over logs and bashing through shrubbery. High up above the trees we watched him chop steps in ice that was too slippery to negotiate and learned how to test the snow for safety. We walked, scrambled, and scampered until our legs ached with fatigue. Donna, can you tell us how you came to write this book about Edward Foyt's and where you are in your life as you tackled this project? I'm not very good with benchmarks as far as where I am in my life. Perhaps I haven't followed a typical or usual pattern in life. So I am practice, actively practicing psychology. So that, that's the context. The other context is that for the last several decades, I've lived in the Canadian Rockies. So it's a backdrop now for my whole life, whereas it used to be something that I carried in my memory and looked forward to and visited once a year. What really happened, and I think this is quite common with with some authors or writers, is that words just appear. Very frequently they appear in the morning, and we know from psychology that uh, if you want to remember something or studying for an exam, go over it very briefly before you sleep, and then sleep consolidates it, and in the morning you stand a better chance of remembering. Words appear at all sorts of times, and sometimes I scribble them down, sometimes I don't. But with Edward, I was just flooded with very detailed memories that were personal. In other words, events and silly little things that had happened at his house or with him, and some very important things that had happened. And I started scribbling them down. And you know how memory works as you as you start thinking about a topic, that door in your brain opens. <laughs> and sometimes an enormous amount can come flooding out, and that's what happened. So I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and it was entertaining for sure. And I remembered things that I hadn't remembered in years, and my sister and mother remembered little bits too, and we incorporated those. And it just grew, basically. And at some point, I thought, well, this could be a book. And then it got serious as far as research and really dedicating as much time as I could while balancing my 
uh, day job, so to speak, as a clinical psychologist. And uh, I'm very happy to, that it's actually resulted in a published book. It's thrilling. It's not anything I thought would ever happen, but it's quite exciting. The other part of this story, apparently, <laughs> stories are complicated, is that my mother and sister both insist that Edward wanted me to write it, which I find quite touching. Now, <laughs> I don't know whether I was not in the room when this happened or I had just forgotten and blocked it with all the things that I was occupying my mind with during these, these years after his um, after the end of his life, which was 1981. So you mean even before he died, he wanted you to write a book? Yes, apparently. Ah, wow. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I didn't know that. It would have felt like more pressure. Not, not really. I, I've always wanted, uh, since this, it became clear that I was seriously going towards writing a book, I, I wanted it to be something that Edward would be proud of, given that he wasn't alive to help me out, if you know what I mean. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although he has been, in a sense, alive from the other side, perhaps, and certainly through your memory. I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced he, um, he appeared at one point and said, finish the blank, blank book. <laughs> I can see his face. <laughs> no, meant kindly, but <laughs> he was an impatient person. <laughs> we close this program with Donna reading of her two climbs of Mount Tupper in the Southwark Mountains. Both were inspired by Edward, who had guided the first ascent in 1906, now guided by Sepp Renner, a Swiss guide and friend of Edward's, who was one of the early helicopter ski guides, and, with his family, operated Mount Assiniboine Lodge for many years. Gazing intently into our faces, and with a mixture of gravity and excitement in his voice, he said, This year I want you to climb Tupper. It was as if a great honor had been bestowed upon us, and we smiled self-consciously. Although always flattered by his annual plans for us, we were acutely aware that he was living vicariously in our literal footsteps. We knew that Mount Tupper was in Roger's Pass. We had gazed at the peak from the safe and civilized perspective of the road many times. But this mountain was different than other mountain mandates we had been given. It was one of Edward's 100-plus first ascents, and thus was extra special for us as well as for him. He had climbed Mount Tupper on July 2nd, 1906, as a very young man in the company of his cousin, Gottfried Voigts, and a German client, Wolfgang Kurler. Edward had promised to show us his first ascent photos and to tell us about the route after dinner that evening. 
The black and white images carefully pasted into the black-paged album were good pictorial representation of the climb, but we were not entirely cheered by viewing them. There was decided trepidation at hearing, and here is the hand traverse. It will make you smile. Seeing Curler, arms stiff, inching along on his palms with his feet dangling over the cliff edge, did not exactly diffuse anxiety. Still, it was one of those special moments that bound us to a past we'd never known, but with which we grew to feel a curious familiarity. Once we reached the rock, we climbed with confident efficiency. It was as if we'd been there before. Meanwhile, across the valley, grinding up the steep avalanche crest trail, a 3,500-foot elevation gain described as a climber's access route, which is rugged and relentless, the now 93-year-old Edward, hoping to catch a glimpse of us climbing his peak, led our parents determinedly towards his own goal. There was no talking on the trail. It was steep. We were late, and chatter is not what we are used to on an approach. Instead, Seppi, Cindy, and I were each lost in our own thoughts of doubt and hope, focused solely on getting up the trail. This reunion, 28 years after the three of us had climbed Mount Tupper together, was for Edward. Again, we were walking in his footsteps, and in those of all the many adventurers who had gone before us. We could not help but feel that these mountains were infused with their spirits, as if their journeys had somehow left fleeting but perceptible traces in the atmosphere. Our first glimpse of Tupper was through the trees as the sun was rising. It stirred the heart, but excitement was tempered by the fact that we were still a long way from the mountain. Finally, Two hours later, we arrived at Alpine Meadows and were greeted by pink and white heather, and amidst patches of snow, carpets of yellow avalanche lilies. From here, it is as Wolfgang says, always up and then down again. We had innumerable gullies and streams to cross until we reached the ridge. We rested a little and then started on again. Seppi, Cindy, and I finally arrived at the glacier, crossed it, and then scrambled up the rocky ridge. Two and a half hours after we'd arrived in the meadows below, it was time to rope up. After all these years, the three of us were actually climbing together again. Over and over again, Seppi exclaimed, Edward, Edward, and we knew what this meant. Memories of Edward flooded our senses as we climbed the chimney. Cindy and I flashed back to the small black-and-white photos we had been shown the night before our first climb on Tupper. It seemed like only yesterday that we had experienced Edward's excitement that we would go where he had gone. We imagined the original three comrades on their way to achieving this first ascent, 
100 years before, and it felt like we were sharing in their exhilaration. Finally, as with Edward, Gottfried, and Wolfgang, we stepped over one sharp knife-edged ridge, tightrope dancing, we called it, and with a loud hurrah, reached the summit. Although happy, too, I felt a lump in my throat as I surveyed all the peaks that had meant so much to our friend, absent from these mountains for over 25 years, but never far from our fondest thoughts. You have been listening to Donna Stephen, reading from Edward Foytes Jr., A Story of Enchantment, and in conversation with me, Carol Harmon. A Story of Enchantment was published by Rocky Mountain Books and may be ordered from your favorite bookstore or library. It was a finalist for the John White Award, Mountain Literature Nonfiction, at the 2022 Banff Mountain Book Competition. My gratitude to fellow producer and host Ingrid Rose and Gary Sill, who creates original music for all our programs and is our tech whiz. And thanks to you, dear listener. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishel Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Thank you.